Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. Hey. Jonathan, hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, I'm Meg, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of this. No, thank you for having me. Got a much nicer setup than I do. I'm currently in the garden shed. <laughs> oh, I think I'd rather be in the garden shed. This is just, it's just a nice lens. It's in a very standard room. <laughs> well, you're a cinematographer, so you have to have nice lenses. <laughs> it's true. I have to represent. So thank you so much for, for agreeing to be a part of this. We're, sure. we're thank you very for young, me. so we're very thankful for anyone who um, pays us the slightest bit of attention. <laughs> no, I'm happy to. <laughs> no, exactly. So our whole thing essentially is trying to connect the aspirational with the experienced, i.e. Mm-hmm. giving access to mentorship and conversation and experience to those who are interested in following a creative life really mm-hmm. I think people tend to know what is involved in say an actor's life or say even a director's life but there's kind of more behind the scenes people like cinematographers where I think it's trickier for people to understand what it is that you actually do mm. okay you google what a cinematographer is and it says mm-hmm. the one who sits behind the camera <laughs> right. right and I think well, I'm hoping you'll tell me that there's a lot more involved than just sitting behind the camera. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So can we start, I guess, by asking in the simplest terms for someone who has not researched a cinematographer, what is it that you do? Ah, well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the conception is that the cinematographer really is just the person who pans and tilts the camera around. And on some jobs, that's definitely part of, you know, the responsibility is, is operating the camera. But I like to think that my job as a cinematographer or director of photography is to manage the look of the entire project and devise and execute a visual language that helps tell the story and helps reinforce whether there's dramatic moments or comedic moments or you know mysterious moments or anything like that scary moments if it's a horror movie mm-hmm. and it's just trying to figure out a way to use the visual expression of the of the of the shots and the lighting and the ambiance again just to kind of like reinforce the story um, and help tell it and not get in the way and show off, but just be more like kind of like, oh, we're in, in a perfect world. What happens is you don't even notice the cinematography hmm. and not because you're not doing anything, but because it's so well woven into the storytelling from the visual side of it. So w- would you say you're like the glue that kind of holds together the director's vision, the lighting team, the design team, all of that? I mean, in a, in a way, yes. I mean, I, I only hesitate just because, you know, film and television production is a very collaborative medium. So it's not like, you know, I mean, those are definitely my responsibilities, but I, I like to work in conjunction with the director, the production designer, the set decorators, the prop people, and the actors, of course, the lighting team, the camera team, et cetera. And and everybody kind of like, you know, doing it together because there certainly are, are situations where the director of photography is going to be the person driving the train. 
but I think we always get the best results when it's kind of like everybody is contributing and everyone feels like they're invested in it. Definitely. So do you, do you start, I guess your job at the very beginning? So pre-production, that's when you get involved. Yeah. I mean, I'll usually, by the time people start calling me, there's usually a script, you know, that's pretty close to the shooting script. Mm-hmm. and some other people on the production team might have been hired but not much has been done in terms of like building sets or choosing locations you know because I'm involved in those conversations so mm-hmm. it's kind of like right after the script is in kind of like a shootable form is when mm-hmm. I start to get involved okay so the producer hires you you get the script what's the first thing that happens? Do you sit down with the director? Well, lots and lots of meetings happen is the, mm-hmm. is the first thing that happens. And definitely this, the critical, the, the central conversations involve the director of photography and, or the cinematographer and the director, because those are the two people who are going to be really creating kind of like at the very least, kind of like the base visual language, you know, that people can use and you can like hand off certain other responsibilities and ideas to other people. Okay. But, you know, you need to have kind of like that, that main, that main idea, whether it's one big idea or several small ideas that kind of like add up together. Mm-hmm. But that that's generally between me and, and the director. And um, then it's kind of like working after that with the producer, with the production designer, with the assistant director and, trying to facilitate, you know, what everybody else is trying to do, but also this kind of like main visual thrust and then working within the parameters of the show, you know, the, 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 the schedule and the budget and, uh, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the resources and all of that. Okay. So do you, in, in, I guess in those like first conversations then, do you talk about things like color palettes and ratios and that kind of thing yeah you know it's I mean it's it's a little bit of everything sometimes it starts with like a very specific idea like I see this one scene going this way and that kind of drives the conversation Mm -hmm. for the rest of it and other times it is a little bit more kind of big picture conversations like you're saying like we might talk about you know what what is the general kind of like color scheme of it or what kind of lenses do we want to use or how do we does the camera want to move a lot does it want to be handheld you know, all of the different things that we have at our, all the tools or toys, you know, that we have at our, dispo- our mm-hmm. disposal, how do we use them or not use them to kind of like most effectively tell the story? I don't like to think that there's any kind of like one way to do anything, you know, and I think that what's happened recently is that people have started to mix a lot of genres and, and just styles together, you know, like, for example, like the show Search Party that I work on, mm. it is kind of like half of a comedy and half of a drama. And so we never really wanted to shoot it as one or the other. We wanted to do something where it kind of feels like both all the time, yeah. which is sometimes a very tricky line to, to balance. But, you know, again, it's kind of like just giving everybody room to like, if you want people to be funny, you give people room to be funny. If you want people to be dramatic, you kind of like start driving towards that. But overall, mm-hmm. like Search Party wants to have kind of like one experience you know it wants to feel like you're kind of telling one story not like two stories that may or may not intersect so Mm. that's kind of like I mean it's the fun of it but it's also the tricky part is figuring out where where that line is and how you kind of straddle it and how you maybe lean in one direction or another depending on what the what the scene is I guess I I mean I'm assuming that's just experience that's kind of made you able to kind of straddle that line you've got I mean 
huge experience from like different styles from features to documentaries to sketch shows that kind of thing yeah I mean I've been lucky in that regard that you know a lot of people not just cinematographers but people in any position on a on a set sometimes get uh pigeonholed and they become like oh this is a comedy person or this is a documentary person mm -hmm. or this is a whatever person and I've been able to have my fingers in a lot of different pies. And what's great about that is I can take lessons that I've learned from one and I can apply them to another. And you can mm -hmm. be a little bit eclectic, you know, about your approach to something. Yeah. But I think on top of experience, you also just want to have an open mind and a, and a sense of curiosity going on so that, you know, you're not also repeating yourself. So you yeah. see opportunities to try something new or maybe push the boundaries or maybe it is something you did before, but you just want to do it a little bit better or a little bit more refined or a little bit more yeah. subtle, you know, whatever it is. So it's in my mind, it, it is, it is experience, you know, because you certainly don't want to do the things that you know, you don't like, but then it's bringing in this no preconceptions maybe is one way to think about it. Just like a clear, like a blank slate every time you approach a project. And then while you're making it, the openness to, improvisation or like a new opportunity or just seeing something like oh I didn't think of that and like let's do that because I think that might be better. Mm. Do, do you find that your experience with directors has, has allowed for that kind of spontaneity and collaborative experience? Like I mean, collabor to your collaboration idea. yes I mean most of the directors that I've worked with um, I've been again very lucky they're very into the collaborative spirit um, and they definitely want me to feel ownership over whatever project that we're working on. But there are some directors also who come in with a very strong idea of what they want that project to look like or how they just want to approach it. And at that point, then maybe my responsibilities are less the big idea stuff and maybe they're more kind of like the, the, the subtler pieces of it or just like making sure it's executed as well as possible mm -hmm. or trying to elevate it maybe a little bit more. But I would say in my in my personal experience, it's been less of that. And it's been more of the people who say like, I want to know what you think and let's kind of build this together. Yeah. And as I was saying before, I, I think that ends up ultimately getting better results overall than coming in and saying like, this is it. And what I've learned, maybe this is the documentary stuff talking a little bit more is that the more you try and approach something with like, it has to be this way, the more you're going to end up in something of an uphill battle mm. because things happen and you need to be able to adapt and adjust and, and improvise. And, and if you're too myopic, you know, or single-minded about the approach, you might end up just kind of like spinning your wheels or just not getting what you're looking for. Yeah. I was going to say with documentary, especially, you've got to be on your toes as well. And I'm assuming there's a lot less kind of equipment available and preparation time. So yeah, I mean, you it's, know you know, you it's, do. um, documentaries are, I kind of fell into them accidentally, you know, when I started doing them 15 years ago or yeah. thereabouts. And I was kind of surprised by how much I enjoyed the fact that, you know, instead of 80 or 100 people and trucks and all of this stuff and all this time and your lighting and et cetera, you know, it's four, five people in a minivan. And whatever you can throw over your shoulder, that's what you're working with that day. But it does teach you to work, to get a lot out of a little. It does teach you to keep your eyes and your ears open to see other opportunities or when something might be happening that's just out of the, in the periphery. And 
I think it requires that you have this kind of improvisational spirit because again, like whatever your preconceptions are stepping into the room, whether it's a documentary as a whole or an individual scene that you're shooting, it's invariably going to change. You're better off letting the story kind of propel you in a direction mm -hmm. and let's say ride the current as opposed to swimming upstream and letting that inspire you to find these, these other ways to kind of like tell that story. And that's, that's a great thing about documentaries because you learn that you can be nimble and that you can like be open-minded and then you can take those lessons, you can apply them to narrative filmmaking. I mean, it's a little bit of a different monster because when you have a hundred people standing around, you can't just like turn, you know, like a, you're not a speedboat, you're more like a, you know, a battleship. Um, <laughs> but it's just nice to be able to kind of like appreciate and, and maybe take advantage of things that you weren't thinking about. I mean, that definitely sounds very artistic and, and creative, but I guess there's a very heavy technical side to what you do as well. How did you, I guess, go about learning that technical side of things? Frankly, wasn't very hard for me just because I really enjoyed all the technical stuff. When I started in the film business, there really wasn't such a thing as HD. There really weren't digital cinema cameras. So you're only talking about like shooting on 35 millimeter, super 16 millimeter, or some form of video, digibeta or, or whatever. Okay. Um, and so that meant that you weren't like overwhelmed by this kind of like relentless, like new stuff showing up on the horizon. Yeah. And you could think about like, okay, well, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about lens design or f-stops or lighting or film stock and, you know, photochemical technology and all that stuff. And I just loved it. I devoured as much of that as I could. Yeah. Now that we've moved into this digital cinema environment, it's less of that technical stuff because you know, frankly, I'm, it, it flies over my head the way, you know, some of these things work. You know, there's geniuses who work in labs and stuff like that somewhere. And I just trust that they know what they're doing. But it means that you can kind of like, instead of thinking about like, oh, I want to understand exactly how a sensor works. And, you know, with color science and all of these things that are important, you can use other people's in experience and insight and I can think a little bit more about like, oh, like there's a new camera on the horizon every six months or there's a new lighting instrument on the horizon every six yeah. months. And the improvements that are being made in those industries is just mind blowing. You know, like what we can do with lighting technology and camera technology now versus 20 years ago, it's, it's, it's insane. Especially considering that basically the hundred years before that, things really didn't change that much at all, yeah. you know? film stocks got better and things like that. And cameras got better and lenses got faster, but mm -hmm. it was still very much just like, okay, there's film, it's in the camera, there's a lens yeah. on the front and that's it, you know? And then that's how you work. Definitely. So where did you start with it? Let's go back to the beginning. So how okay. did you get your foot in the door? When, did you go to school for this? Did you have familial connections, that kind of thing? I had no connections whatsoever. I mean, I knew, I can't remember exactly when I had this kind of realization, but I knew when I was like a pre-teenager that I wanted to go in the film business. And it really just came out of just a love of watching movies. Yeah. And I just going to the video store and devouring every video that I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. um, but I had no idea what the film business was or what that meant or what I wanted my role to be in that business. Mm -hmm. So then I went to film school. I went to New York university and when I was there, you know, at, at, at NYU, at least at the time, most of the people who went there went, went with the idea of being some kind of a writer director, 
like getting influence from like people like Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And I kind of like realized quickly, but not like there was no intention behind this, but I kind of realized that that really wasn't for me. And the only thing I was really interested in, well, I shouldn't say the only thing, but the thing that really kind of grabbed me was camera. And it was like I was saying before, it was just like the devouring all of the technical stuff and just being really fascinated with how cameras work and how film stocks work and all of that kind of stuff. And it just kind of kept pushing me slowly in that direction. And all of my friends saw that I was like, oh, he's the guy who knows about cameras, you know, right. so let's let him shoot the student film yeah. or whatever it was. And it just kind of went from there. Um, so I like to think that, you know, I didn't choose cinematography. Like we kind of found each other yeah. in a way. And did it just you, kind of was like a fit. Did you just have this gut instinct for visuals? Like that looks right, that doesn't look right. Or was it just trial and error? I mean, I like to think that I have a, you know, a, a sensibility, but I think for me and probably for most people, it is a lot of trial and error. The thing that's interesting about the film business, and well, I guess I don't, I don't know much about like how music business or you know fine art or all of those things go, but everything in film and television is based on the body of work that already exists. You know, mm -hmm. we're always talking about like, oh, you know, I love how this scene looks in Citizen Kane, or there's a scene in The Godfather or Apocalypse Now, and you know, we want to kind of like get into kind of like that that kind of visual language, so that kind of gives you like, there's an inherent kind of like style baked into that. Like you're already approaching it like, oh, I want this kind of framing and I want this right. kind of like lens and, and lighting and things like that. And as you keep doing it more and more, you just start like gravitating towards the things that, you know, you really react to mm -hmm. and pushing some of the other stuff away. You know, you're yeah. taking in all of this inspiration and influence and you're just kind of like weeding out the stuff that you like. And then taking it and spinning it and making it your own, you know, so mm -hmm. that ideally, like after a little while, you have your own Style. thing that you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, although it is important as a cinematography to be a, a cinematographer, to be a bit of a chameleon, no two projects are the same. Yeah. And you certainly don't want to just do the same thing over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of always reinventing yourself at least a little bit, um, but still drawing on that big body of work you know that just mm -hmm. already exists in terms of film and television and all of that do you find yourself studying new filmmakers or just like oh, YouTube absolutely videos yeah. and stuff about new equipment well, and new styles not necessarily youtube stuff although i do watch things on youtube and vimeo and etc mm. um i think it's just a little bit harder to discover things that way but i'm certainly watching what you know people are doing on the newer TV shows and music videos, I think are a great place to see kind of like people experimenting and trying new things and mm. pushing boundaries and commercials to, uh, to an extent. But that's one of the great things about what we do is that even though, you know, the, the storytelling tools haven't changed that much in the last hundred and whatever years, you know, we're still able to kind of like keep reinventing and pushing the boundaries and saying like, oh, I mean, of course now things like vintage lenses are such a huge hit. Mm. You know, and it's like people looking back at what, you know, cinematographers were doing in the 60s and 70s and saying, we want it to look like that, you know, so it's like, it's, it's just like everything, this big, massive choices and inspiration and ideas that we're just always kind of like picking off of, but people finding new ways to apply it, you know, which yeah. is the exciting part. But I mean, I, I think we're definitely seeing that with TV at the moment, really, isn't it? Because it's becoming so cinematic and... It's completely different to how it was, what, five years ago, six years ago? 
Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I remember when there was a very strong line between television and film Yeah, and it wasn't just in terms of like the storytelling and things like that. It was like, there were certain actors, movie actors who wouldn't be caught dead on a television set. Yeah. And same thing with cinematographers and directors and et cetera. It was like, you're in the film camp or in the TV camp. That line is so blurry now, mm. um, which is a great thing, but it is, I'm a little bit curious about what this means for the future because one of the things that was kind of special about film at least 20 years ago or 30 years ago was that a film had a shelf life for many years, you know, and if it was a classic movie, it was decades, you know, yeah. um, and now it feels like there's so much, it's going to be hard for films to kind of like rise above and maybe partially that's because, you know, just consuming a movie on Netflix is so inherently different than consuming it in a movie theater Yeah. and consuming something at a movie theater. I shouldn't say consuming, but like watching something in a movie theater yeah. is a, is an experience that people remember and, and hopefully cherish, you know, if it's a good movie, there are so many movies that I've seen in the theater, like going back to when I was like six years old that I can remember the experience, you know, vividly, mm. I would be hard pressed to do to, to be able to tell you like how I was feeling or where I was sitting when I watched something on Netflix or yeah. Apple Plus or, or any of these new platforms. Yeah, it's not, it's not quite the adventure or the experience. Yeah, it's you know, there's, there's, a, there's an inherent kind of like amount of distraction that comes from watching something at home because, you know, yeah. if you want to use the bathroom or get a sandwich or check your phone, you know, it's all there. And I do that as much as anybody. The, the flip side is that now we have all these outlets for storytelling that yeah. just didn't exist before, um, which is great because, you know, filmmakers just have so many more ways to get their films and, and shows out there. Mm. Maybe that's the uh, trade-off is that, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a lot more to choose from. Mm. As you were saying, you know, TV is so different than it used to be. Like there's some amazing storytelling and amazing yeah. filmmaking happening on TV, but it also feels like, you know, this, uh, it's just a much bigger pie. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this might be quite a, a tricky question to answer, but just based off what you were saying there, if, if you were given a script for a movie, a feature mm -hmm. movie, and you were told it was being released on Netflix and you were told it was being released or you were told it was re being released in cinema, would that completely change your process? Like, would you film it differently based on that criteria? Maybe. I mean, if you're doing something for theatrical release, it does change things a little bit in that you're, you're thinking about how things are going to be presented when they're 80 feet wide and 40 feet high or, you know, whatever it is, which is really different than somebody's television at home and, you know, massively different than somebody watching it on their phone mm. while they're riding the subway. So yeah. I think it just means that when you're doing something for theatrical release, you know, there, there might be a greater attention to detail. I mean, again, the line is so blurry now, it's, mm -hmm. it's just hard to say. I will say though, that I kind of like lament that, you know, so much of media is being consumed on people's phones. I think maybe a better way to think about it is like, if somebody told me we're doing this for people to specifically watch on their phones, that would have a huge impact on the approach because, you know, the, the ability to kind of like take in information is so much more difficult you really right. have to take that into account. Whereas between somebody's, you know, nice flat screen TV in their mm -hmm. living room, 
um, and, a, and a theater, like there's still kind of like a, a yeah. lot that can be taken in. General example that hopefully most people would know is like you take Avengers Endgame, that huge end battle yeah. scene. You don't want to watch that on a small screen because that's far too busy. Right. You want to watch it on a big screen. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, kind of. I mean, well, I, you know, I'll, speaking about that movie specifically, I remember when I did see that movie in the theater, I was thinking while it was going on, I was like, wow, this is a really kind of like mega moment, not because of the story or because of the, um, of, of the movie itself, which I really enjoyed, but because like, I was like, I can't remember the last time I saw 30 movie stars on can on screen at once. Yeah. You know, and it was in some ways kind of overwhelming in a good way, you know, overwhelming, like, wow, mm -hmm. this is so cinematic and this feels so big and epic, you know, mm -hmm. in, in a way that you don't really think about or can really appreciate, certainly not on a phone. Yeah. Um, and, and a little bit less so on, on your television at home. Those are some of the things that I think are in danger of disappearing. Yeah. So you went to university. Yeah. You studied there what was your kind of first job my first job out of college was at a, a commercial production company called zuma zuma that was <laughs> in new york city and I, my job primarily was just just you know cut reels together on these old three-quarter inch video decks which okay. were very you know they weren't very sophisticated at all and through that they knew I wanted to get into camera stuff so they started introducing me to the dps that they were working with and the acs that they were working with and those were when I left that a year and a half later or however long it was, um, when I left that production company, those are the people who I started working with when I started freelancing. And so then I started working in the indie film and commercial world as a camera assistant and shooting on the side when I could for eight or 10 years or something like that. And then that's when I kind of started shooting more in, you know, more seriously. So what do you do as a, a camera assistant? What What's the vibe of that role? Well, a lot of people call the camera assistant, the focus puller, because that's mm -hmm. their primary responsibility is to make sure the shots are in focus. The camera department is a team. And so there are other camera assistants who have other responsibilities, but kind of like the number one responsibility, if you're talking about a camera assistant is mm -hmm. making sure the shot is in focus, mm -hmm. but it's also making sure that all the equipment is there, that it's clean, that it operates properly, you know, that um, they're changing lenses and doing all of these things and interface interfacing with other departments mm -hmm. to make sure that it's all you know working right and you know working with the cinematographer to make sure that uh we're getting everything as as well as possible yeah you're pulling off the vision that you um, yeah for. i guess that sitting with all these dps throughout that period you're, you're absorbing all their experience and information yeah it becomes a, a great kind of spot to just sit and observe because, you know, a lot of times on a film set, you're just sitting around, especially yeah. the focus puller, because, you know, until you're rehearsing or shooting, you're just kind of like, you know, the camera's built, it's there, you know, you're answering a question here or there, but really you don't have that much to do until you're rolling and then you have a lot to do. So it was nice to be able to kind of step back and see how other people were doing things. Because I had been shooting, like I said, in film school and things like that, but I had never done like a big nighttime exterior across 10 city blocks and all of that stuff. And it took a lot of the intimidation factor out of it to be able to see like, oh, okay, you know, it's basically the same, just on a bigger scale, you mm -hmm. know, and you just think about this and this and this, and where's the camera going to be? And that's where the light has to go. And, you know, then when I had to do it, it just got, like I said, less intimidating. Yeah. Do you find yourself receiving any great tips of advice or even 
worth terrible advice from some of those mentors. I can't remember any like, you know, nuggets specifically, but I do know that I took a lot away from the people that I was working with in terms of just how you conduct yourself on set and working with a crew being respectful or, you know, watching people who were disrespectful and just knowing like, I don't want to be that. And also, you know, the psychology that is required for working with a team of a hundred people and making sure that you can communicate effectively and that you can get people on board with your idea, you mm-hmm. know, cause if you come on the set and you're like, I want to do something completely different. People might be like, okay, well we're into different, but if you can't get them to understand it or, or, or get on board with it, then you're, you're going nowhere. Yeah. So that ability to command and give respect and work effect- effectively and efficiently and communicate effectively and efficiently. I think those were the valuable, yeah. those were the more valuable lessons for me. I think it's it's got to be very difficult to balance those those lines. It sounds like being such a collaborative process, it could be quite blurry sometimes. It can be for sure. I mean, when, a, when I was in film school, somebody told me, they said, look, if you want to be a cinematographer, the two things you need to study are photography and psychology. Mm-hmm. And if you can be good at both of those, then you'll be a good cinematographer. Um, and I was, and I can't say I knew what that person meant at the time, but now 20 years later, I'm like, that is a hundred percent true. Well, that's a good nugget right there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is a good nugget. So do you remember kind of what the big, the big switch was for you, like moving from, I guess, AC roles to your first kind of big DP role? It was almost accidental in the same way that, you know, going into cinematography in general was almost accidental. Mm. I was assisting for a guy who did a lot of documentary work, but was moving into doing uh, feature films, scripted films. And so as he started to make that transition, he started giving me some of the documentary clients that he couldn't work with anymore. Not because he didn't want to, but just because he wasn't available. And so, like I said, I wasn't pursuing documentary work, but that door opened um, ended up being incredibly rewarding and fulfilling, mm-hmm. but that kind of ended up being the transition. And it like, it would be hard to like pinpoint a moment where, where that thing happened as much as I just kind of like looked up one day and I realized like, oh, I'm just, I'm not really a camera assistant anymore. Now yeah. I'm a cinematographer. You know, it just, it happened gradually, but quickly enough that you just kind of go, whoa, you know, okay, I guess this yeah. is it now. Amazing. And I guess, I've, I guess with those documentaries, kind of really touched on the the weird and wonderful side of this industry which is that you can end up doing some completely mad things and just looking at your website it looks like you've been on volcanoes and glaciers and all that kind of thing yeah no I'm I feel really fortunate I documentaries I think give you the ability to meet people and be in situations you never would expect to be otherwise and travel the world and see new people new places and you know and all of it. And it's just, it offers up the opportunity for experiences that you wouldn't, you, you know, you wouldn't be able to take advantage of. And I think that ultimately the storytelling is the most important thing, Yeah. but it's all part of the whole experience. I mean, I've, I've like, got to say, I don't think I would be too keen to stand on an active volcano with a camera. So, oh, well, <laughs> you know, don't, you. <laughs> never say never. And they're like, the next thing you know, I mean, one of the things that's really kind of fun about being a documentary cameraman is that once you put the eyepiece up to your eye, you stop really thinking about the outside world, mm. or at least you stop thinking about it outside of what you're doing. I mean, you're, you are trying to keep your eyes and ears open for things going on around you. 
but in terms of like, I'm sorry, eruptions or eruptions. I mean, but in, in terms of like literally standing on a cliffside, yeah. you know, what might be terrifying if you're just there by yourself with no camera suddenly just becomes part of the job and part of the experience when you're when you're looking through an eyepiece so i mean that's i guess the the really intriguing and fun side is to really experience things that you might not usually experience it's a very active very cool job to be able to do is there anything that you don't like about what you have to do like something that really gets on your nerves every time you have to do it there aren't that many downsides to it i mean certainly we work long hours you know, I have a shoot tomorrow. I have to get up at five in the morning. I'm not excited about that. <laughs> and especially when you're working on documentary projects. Um, but I think just in general, you know, you're not eating well, you're not sleeping well, you're not, it, it can take its toll, you know, mm. physically and emotionally and mentally and, and spiritually and, and everything. But it all goes away once you start working. Mm. You know, there have been more times than I can count, you know, I've showed up on set dead tired, like feeling like completely spent and no creative energy whatsoever. Mm. And then, you know, as soon as they, we start rehearsing the first scene, it's like, okay, it all just comes flooding back. Yeah. Um, the adrenaline stops going. Yeah. And there's so much room. I mean, we've all had bad jobs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've had bad experiences, you know, mm-hmm. with people or, or projects or, or whatever. And I certainly don't hope to repeat those, but even in the bad ones, there's always fun to be had. There's always things to learn. There's always things to try. Like, I mean, when I talk to my friends about it, I always feel like if it's a bad job, just like start experimenting, start doing weird things, start, you know, pushing yourself and going outside of your comfort zone. And maybe that will just completely turn it around. And, you know, if there's a person that you don't enjoy working with, you might not be able to fix that, but at least you can fix the the things that are within your control. Yeah, definitely. How are you finding things at the moment with with the COVID situation? Is has that made things a lot trickier to film on set? Definitely, it's it's had a huge impact, not just in terms of the day to day nuts and bolts uh, filmmaking, but a lot of pressure on budgets and schedules because now a lot of money and time is, has to be spent to making sure that everyone is safe and that we're testing regularly and we have all the protocols in place and people there to administer them and et cetera. And people working with masks and face shields and social distancing and all that, it, it does change sometimes your approach to how you want to shoot something. It also sometimes changes the way that a scene goes, you know, because you can't necessarily have a scene with like 20 people dancing together because yeah. that might not pass protocol. So you have to kind of reconcept, kind of yeah. bleh, reconceptualize it or think of a way to shoot it that'll make it so everybody still feels safe. Okay. So, so the good news is that everybody's on board with it. I haven't yeah. met a single person yet who has been... Would you say it in a way kind of limiting the um, creativity you can have, like you're reduced to like a certain number of shots rather than like being able to experiment with any kind of free time if it is, if it is there. Well, the, certainly, you know, with, with the pressure on the budget and the schedule, you have to make accommodations yeah. because of that. And so that's a bummer because, you know, your, your 10 hour day is suddenly like an eight and a half hour day or something like that, or 12 hours becomes 11 or whatever it is. Mm. So you're, you're making sacrifices in that regard. But in terms of like, if you have an idea of a kind of a specific kind of shot that maybe is very complicated or requires special equipment or things like that, 
I haven't seen any problems with that. It just means that like you have to maybe sacrifice a little bit of something else yeah. to be able to get to it. Just because like, you know, that, the, the pie is just a little bit smaller. Mm. Well, good. I'm just, I, I guess I'm just glad that you're still managing to get out there and film and, and work. And Oh my God, me too. <laughs> adjust, you know, I think it's amazing how people can adjust so quickly when they need to. It does say something about, you know, the human spirit that there's this thing going on that was hard to understand initially. And people were like, at least where we are in Southern California was yeah. just bizarre there was a, like a great cloud of bizarreness kind of hanging over everything. Yeah. But then, you know, people start to, you dip your toe in and you kind of yeah. see how it goes. And then we've developed protocols and now there's been enough time that I think, I don't want to say it's straightforward because it's always going to be a little bit different, but I yeah. think it's just, it's, it's manageable. Yeah. Um, and everyone can't wait till we're done with it. Yeah. But at this point it's manageable. Well, definitely. I mean, people will be eager to get back to normal, but yeah. It's that I think um, at the beginning, everyone was very doom and gloom. Like this is the mm -hmm. end of the creative industry. So I'm like, I think we're a lot more resilient than um, yeah. people sometimes give us credit for. <laughs> to wrap it up a bit, because I, I know you've got um, to prep for your next job tomorrow. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. Thank you so much for making the time in the first place. I guess I'll kind of ask if you can sum up in a way, uh, what are the good, bad and mad things about your job? The good is that I feel creatively and like mentally fulfilled by what I do. Mm -hmm. And every day is different. So even if I'm on the same project for a long amount of time, or we're in the same location for a long amount of time, every scene is different. Every, every shot is different. And you have to kind of be involved. You know, it just requires you to be involved. And so I, I really appreciate that it never really feels old. It never feels rote. You know, it always feels like new and fresh at the beginning of every day or throughout the day um, for that. Mm. The bad is, you know, it's <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's a long time between bathroom breaks. And sometimes, you know, you're just throwing like the worst food that you can find, <laughs> you know, into your mouth just because you just got to keep going and there's so much to do and you want to be involved, but those are small, you know, compared to the, to the good. Mm. Um, the mad, I think is just, it's, it's crazy that we get to do it. You know, it's crazy that we get to make movies and TV shows and music videos and all of these things that are so fun. They're so fun to be a part of. They're so fun to watch. I couldn't explain how movies became such a, so, so interwoven in the social fabric, but they are. You know, and TV is a little bit easier because, you know, everyone's got one in the living room. Yeah. But as TV has kind of grown up and we're in this golden age or whatever people want to call it, you know, mm. it's just crazy to me that I get to be involved in the first mm. place. Yeah. I, no, that's, the, that's the good, bad, mad to me. You're right. The um, storytelling is certainly woven into the fabric of humanity, I think. And if you had a budgeting cinematographer approach you fresh out of film school what what kind of advice would you pass on to them I would say always learn mm -hmm. you know whether you're watching something or working on something or just thinking about something reading books what have you what have you walking mm -hmm. down the street appreciating the light and watching how things kind of happen you know you can learn a lot about what you like and what you don't like and what inspires you mm -hmm. um, I would just say stay curious you know don't fall into any kind of 
thing where you're like, well, I'm just going to do what I did the last time and that'll be just fine. Like that's to me a death spiral and enjoy everything that this business and this job has to offer because it is, in my opinion, truly unique. And I feel really fortunate that I'm one of the people who gets to do it. Well, Jonathan, that is wonderful words to pass on to the next generation. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you. I'm very excited for people to hear your experiences. Oh, I'm, I'm excited too. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Bad Mad podcast. Please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it. You can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.